take a Bible and let's turn to the letter of James, chapter 4, this morning. James, chapter 4, we're going to look at uh, just two verses today, verses uh, 11 and 12, which address the presumption and idolatry of harmful speech. Uh, Looming in the background of the current election is the FBI's investigation of Hillary Clinton for using a private email server to handle classified information. The FBI accumulated evidence suggesting that Mrs. Clinton jeopardized our nation's security. But what was so surprising for many was the FBI's recommendation not to place on Mrs. Clinton any security or administrative sanctions. A number of news articles immediately hit the press stating that if the allegations were true, then this was clear evidence that Mrs. Clinton functions above the law. I mention the uh, situation not as a matter of political persuasion. Rather, I bring it up to say that whenever a person functions above the law, it provokes a level of disgust. Uh, We find it audacious and arrogant and alarming. But what if I said that the Bible has a similar assessment of us when we use harmful speech? That when we speak evil of others, we too function as if we're above the law. And not above the law of a mere nation state, but above the law of the most holy God. James has this assessment of each of us whenever we use harmful speech. Let's read God's word together, starting in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Father in heaven, I pray that you would attend now to the time together in your word that you would humble us before you that our days might be full of good and edifying speech towards one another that we might grow into Christ through this word and his likeness and not live a life of pride above your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last month or so, uh, James has been getting to the heart of our conflict problems. He already mentioned how dangerous our tongues can be. Uh, He then pointed us to the wisdom from above that makes us humble peacemakers instead of war makers. 
He also taught us what needs to change in us. Ultimately, it's, it's the heart which is so often led astray by wayward passions. And these sinful passions, they cause quarrels and fights and disorder. But the hope is that God has more grace for the humble, verse 6 taught us. His grace can change us. The hope is that God does mend our relationship with, with Himself, and by mending our relationship with Himself, He then heals our relationships with one another. We can begin making peace with those who are naturally our enemies. James now builds on that vertical relationship with God and, and shows how it affects our horizontal relationships to others. Today he addresses harmful speech. There's only one command in this section, and you can see it in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another. The rest is just explaining why we can't speak evil against one another. But first, let's concentrate on the commands so we know what he means throughout the passage. There could be some confusion especially by the time you get to the end of verse 12 and he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? And many of us can probably think of other passages in the New Testament that actually say that we should judge our uh, brothers and sisters in the church. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 5.12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, that is, non-Christians? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So in some sense, we're supposed to judge. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 5, that judgment is to occur for those who continue in unrepentant sin and therefore threaten the gospel's testimony and the church's purity. So when James starts equating speaking evil of one another to judging your neighbor, we shouldn't think that he's dismissing judgment altogether. There are noble, patient judgments that must take place to preserve the gospel and to protect the church. James has a particular kind of judgment in mind that's manifested when we speak evil, though, of, of, of one another. And, and that kind of just judgment becomes clearer as we look at what James means by speaking evil or speaking against a brother. The speech he has in mind is degrading speech. Speech that, that puts others down and raises ourselves above them. Okay, it's what we might call slander or defamatory talk of another person. It's the kind of speech that the pagan world actually takes for granted. Uh, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 and chapter 3, verse 16, where both of those passages assume that this is just what the pagan world does on a regular basis against Christians. They, they slander them and they remile, revile them for their, their good moral behavior. So the kind of evil speech James has in mind is the kind whereby we put ourselves above others and smash them down with our insulting words. Okay? To judge here means to sit in judgment over somebody because they don't do things the way you like and the way you want. 
Now, we could probably think of the obvious remarks that people might utter against each other. He's worthless. I can't stand her. He's pathetic. And it may very well be the case that we don't find many of those kinds of things coming off of our lips anymore. But are there more subtle ways that we can speak evil against one another? Are there times when we speak down at others when our personal preferences are elevated to the wrong place? Perhaps you've made judgments against other Christians based on, a, on the preference for homeschooling or public schooling. The homeschooling family murmurs things about the public school folks, and maybe the public school family rolls their eyes and gets fed up with the homeschool folks. Perhaps you've made judgments based on traditional medicine versus alternative medicine. The Advil people, they roll their eyes at the peppermint people. And the peppermint people, they cut off the Advil people. It sounds petty, but it happens. Maybe, maybe you champion a particular theological system and yet demean another brother's character rather than walking together patiently toward the truth. Maybe you've listened to a sermon before and on the way home said to somebody, I hope so-and-so heard what he had to say as if you're beyond the need for rebuke. Perhaps current discussions on how to vote have left you frustrated and slandering those who think differently than you. Or maybe you've had defamatory remarks come out of your mouth toward those holding a different perspective on the issues of racial tensions and the criminal justice system or on Muslims and the refugee crisis. The conversation may have even started okay, but you've slowly moved away from charity to crass remarks, false assumptions about others, and quick jabs. Maybe you want someone else to do a better job than you're doing, I mean, than they're doing. But instead of patiently walking with them, you tear them down. You talk about them with others, putting them down and criticizing their work behind their back. James finds these similar attitudes in the churches that he's writing to. For example, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, the rich are looking down on the poor. They are dishonoring them with their words. Their partiality, he says, makes them judges with evil thoughts. They're putting themselves above others with their talk. He also mentions bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that are leading to disorder and quarrels and fights in chapter 3 and 4. And chapter 5, verse 9 suggests that they're grumbling against each other. This evil speech cannot characterize the church. Why? What's beneath our speaking evil of one another? What's the big deal about grumbling remarks? James takes three steps to expose our harmful speech for what it truly is. Step one, to speak evil against a brother is to sit in judgment over God's law. 
To speak evil against a brother is to sit in judgment over God's law. Verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. You see, James knows that true change this way only happens in relation to true change this way in our relationship with God. And so the first thing he does is he connects sitting in judgment this way over our brothers and sisters to sitting in judgment over God's law. How do the two connect, though? Well, it helps to understand what James means by the law. Okay, he first mentions it in chapter 1, verse 25, and he calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. Okay, that's the Old Testament law as interpreted and fulfilled in Jesus under the new covenant. We've been over this a a few times. Uh, Then he uses it again in chapter 2, verse 8. He calls it the royal law. Again, that is the Old Testament law. It is God's law. But we saw that it's the law that under the new covenant and through the Holy Spirit's power, it gets fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So James seems to be alluding to the same love command. So the, the love command that fulfills that Old Testament law. This is what he seems to be talking about here. He mentions it. He's mentioned it already in chapter 2, verse 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Also, you see that in verse 12, he switches to neighbor at the end. Uh, And then, if you go back and read the context of Leviticus 19, 18, which is where the love command comes from, and you read Leviticus 19, verse 16... The context mentions not slandering your neighbor. To slander your neighbor would be to do them wrong and therefore not to fulfill the law through love. Paul says in Romans 13.10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that includes our speech ethics. Our speech ethics can do no wrong to a neighbor. So here's what I think James is saying. The law of God, when taken as a whole, under the new covenant, can be summed up in neighbor love. To love your neighbor as yourself is not merely to love another as much as yourself, but to take up the life of another and make it your own. You may remember when Wes walked you through Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan a while back. Strong sermon. Go back and listen to it if you haven't listened to it already. Being a neighbor to someone, what does it do? It excludes looking down upon others with contempt and judgmental attitudes. Being a neighbor forsakes all selfish interests It identifies with the other person's weakness and comes down to serve. Okay? That would mean, in terms of our speech, that it speaks not to tear down and destroy, but to raise up and heal. 
Whenever that neighbor love is not present in our speech, we are functionally putting ourselves above God's law and saying it doesn't really matter. It's basically saying to God, your law of neighbor love doesn't matter to me. I have a better way than your way. My harmful words will bring a better kingdom than your kingdom. My crass put-downs will bring faster change than me laying my life down. That's what we're essentially telling God when we use harmful speech. And here's what happens next. Step two, to sit in judgment over God's law subverts obedience to God's law. Sit in judgment over God's law subverts obedience to God's law. Verse 11 again. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Once we determine ourselves to know better than God, we subvert our obedience to Him. We functionally say, if I'm above your law, I don't have to do it. What's the point in obeying God if I know better than God? I know His law calls me to love, but love is just not my way. So you can see how the one leads to the other. Alec Matir writes, In effect, we say that the law is mistaken in commanding love. It ought rather to have commanded criticism. And if we were the lawgivers, it would do so. The law no longer expresses the highest values as far as we're concerned. We know values, those of talking down to our brothers, which are higher still. Isn't this hideous? Right? We set our own law that everybody else has to abide by, and if you cross it, I'll smear you with my words. And simultaneously, we're absolving ourselves from any responsibility to our Creator. And that makes us idolaters, which is what we see next. Step three, to sit in judgment over God's law and subvert obedience to God's law is ultimately to become a God wannabe. It's ultimately to become a God wannabe. It's to set ourselves up on the throne of justice and dictate to God how people in His kingdom ought to be valued and treated and condemned. That's what harmful speech is ultimately about. It's, it's about God taking a back seat to my judgments and my kingdom succeeding. It's idolatry. It's self-worship. And that's why verse 12 goes on to assert there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. If you have the power to save and to destroy, you have supreme authority and supreme rights in the universe. And there is only one with those rights, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone gives the law. He alone knows how this world works. He made it. He alone truly knows right from wrong. 
He alone has exhaustive knowledge of all things, and so his judgment is always pure and true. And he alone judges fully and finally. So this is a, this is a very sobering analysis by James when we are using harmful speech. When, when we use evil words, here's, here's what's going on. You might not say this with your lips, but here's what James is pointing out is going on in the heart. We've moved from I'm better than your law to I don't have to obey your law to get off the throne, I'll say what I want about it. With just a few evil words against another brother or sister, we're attempting to usurp God's authority as judge. We commit cosmic treason. We have plotted the coup. And when the words come out of our mouth, we are putting the coup into action. And of course, it's useless. If God alone is sovereign judge, He has no true competitors to His throne. And we will be held accountable to His law. In the end. So, where do we go from here? Well, James takes us back to that point about humility that he spelled out so well in verses 6 to 10. But this time he humbles us with just a final consideration to consider. And I want us to linger here for the rest of our time. He, he simply asked at the end of verse 12, But who are you to judge your neighbor? Or better, But you, you who judge your neighbor, who are you? Who are you really? Isn't this what Paul asked the church in Rome also? They're getting in disputes over what kinds of foods they should eat and not eat and what kinds of days they should celebrate and not celebrate in the Romans 14. He does the same thing that James is doing. He takes them back and points them to the judge and says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Who are you? This is how you kill the desire to speak evil against others. This is how you put to death those Impulses to cut others down with your words. Okay, this is part of our sanctification, growing in holiness here. We're going to put to death the impulses to cut down others with our words by humbly considering, in light of Scripture, who are you really? Brett Rogers. Who are you really, Redeemer Church? And we can start with this. When we ask that question, who are you? We can start with, you're not the lawgiver and judge. God is. That's what the Bible tells us. We're not the lawgiver and judge. God is. So James puts us in our place by pointing us to God's glory in verse 12 as lawgiver and judge. Sinning against others with our speech reveals that our view of God isn't high enough. We're not centered on His glory enough. We're centered on our own selfish pursuits. We're not trusting in Him as judge, and so we want to be judge. 
The remedy is to embrace the fact that you're not the judge. God is. You're not the lawgiver. God is. True knowledge of self only comes with a true knowledge of God and who we are in relation to Him. True knowledge of self only comes with a true knowledge of God and who we are in relation to Him. We must humble ourselves before the true judge. That's crucial to remember. Otherwise, we end up creating our own laws to live by and our own laws for others to live by. Our personal tastes and preferences and prejudices become the rubric by which we judge others in the world. If they don't look like us, talk like us, do school like us, sing hymns like us, spend money like us, do ministry like us, make much of us, then we speak evil of them. That's what goes on in a people who do not bow before the true judge. Our own laws have determined good from evil in the world, and we have witnessed how disastrous this is. Just read the history of the Bible starting from Genesis 3. It has been the problem with the world since Adam and Eve attempted to bump God off the throne and determine what is good from evil. And it's a problem right now as even Christians tear into each other across social media platforms. And it's a problem right now as even Christians spread false narratives about one another without getting the facts straight face to face. We must step back and remember the real lawgiver, the creator and judge of all, and we are not him. Something else to remember about yourself. You are deserving of judgment. You are deserving of judgment. I am deserving of judgment. We have not always been loving with our words. To one degree or another, we're all guilty of speaking evil of others. God has said, love your neighbor with your words, and we have cut them down. Romans 3 gives this diagnosis of the entire human race. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's everybody. Guilty before the judge, knowing that about, knowing that about yourself keeps you humble. I think Jesus' words in Matthew 7 help help. Uh, helpfully complement James's words here. Jesus's words in Matthew seven, starting in verse one, says, "He says, judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye?" Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now how many times has someone used this passage to escape conviction from sin? Uh -uh, don't, Don't judge lest you too be judged. But if you go on and read the context, it's not saying not to judge at all. 
Rather, Jesus is telling us how to judge. And that is with the humble awareness that we are just as guilty. We've got logs to deal with in our own eyes first. And unless we deal with our own logs first, we'll walk around puffed up with judgmental attitudes and self-righteous condemnation of others. We will put ourselves above others and put them down with our words. So part of remembering who we are is remembering that we're no better than others. We deserve judgment too. Next, we must remember also, you have received mercy. You have received mercy. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Even though we deserve destruction, God has shown us mercy. He sent Jesus into the world to take away our sins and to bear the punishment that we deserved. If you're not in Christ this morning, put your trust in Jesus. He alone takes away sins and all your violations against God's law will be forgiven. He spoke words that lifted us out of the pit of despair when we had slandered others. We hurled insults at Him and we mocked His Lordship and yet He brought us forth by the word of truth, chapter 1 says, to be His own children. These mercies, the psalmist says, are new for us every morning. And if all that mercy is true for us when we deserve judgment, then what kind of mercy ought we to show one another in our speech? Going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, which, which man was it that proved to be a neighbor? The Bible says it was the one who showed mercy. You're not a neighbor if you don't show mercy with your words. Luke 6.36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He has shown us mercy, and that is the fundamental motive to show mercy to others, even with our words. Also, recall that you are a new creation in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. So we're still answering this question. Who are you? Who are you? When we go to the Bible, this is who we are. We are a new creation in Christ. James 1.18 said, Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The new birth gives us a new status with God. We're not part of the world where evil speech is so commonplace We're part of God's new creation breaking into the world. New creation people speak new creation lingo to one another. Paul brings up something similar in relation to our speech ethics. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about putting on the, the new self in Christ. And he says the new self was created after the likeness of God. Taking us back to Genesis 1 and 2 there. The likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, 
He says then again nearly the same thing in Colossians 3.10. Put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. After the image of its creator. The point is that in Jesus we can bear God's image rightly once again. Part of that new creation image bearing involves the way we talk. Ephesians 4.29 gives us the new creation lingo. Here it goes. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay. New creation words are constructive, and they are carefully chosen for whatever situation we're in. The goal being that when they are constructive and when they are carefully chosen and they fit the occasion, that people will grow up and be blessed and grow up in grace. Just think. Every Word we utter in the kingdom to come will build up and will be perfectly suited for every occasion so that every syllable imparts grace to the other person. Every syllable. We're not going to need road signs anymore that say, do not speak evil against one another. We won't want to anymore. Our hearts will be so full of grace that our mouths will be finally released to spread grace with every sentence. But you know what? Even now, we can go to the Scriptures. This is like New creation language school right here. Learn how to speak it by going to the Word. And let's do it together, which leads to one more part of answering this question. Who are you? Finally, you are family. You are family. Did you notice that he uses the word brother three times in verse 11? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother. That makes for the 15th time that he has said, brother or my beloved brothers or my brothers in this short letter. I think he's trying to make a point. When we are in Christ... We are family, and the bond we share in Christ is greater than anything else on earth. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Christ purified us, and He set us apart to be a community that, uh, with sincere brotherly love. So, 1 Peter 2, 1 is talking about putting away all malice and deceit, but it's built upon what he said back in 
chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well, what does that look like? Putting away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. And then he goes on to talk about why that's the case. Because we've tasted of the Lord's goodness. And His goodness towards us leads us to speak purely to each other. If you've truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, your mouth will work differently. James agrees with this when, and that's why he says, do not speak evil of one another. We are brothers and sisters united in Christ, and and that means Christ stands between me and how I speak about anybody else. Don't hurl words at anybody else that Christ himself will not pass on. Even when somebody in the church wrongs us, it's not our place to condemn them. We cannot condemn with our words those whom God has chosen to save. Our our attitude cannot be you go to hell if God has spared them from hell at the cost of His only Son. Who are we to climb up on His throne with our words and tell Him whom He can and cannot love, whom He can and cannot save, who can and cannot be part of His family? You see, we were all orphans once, without hope. And we've all been adopted into the same family by the same Father who gave up His only one-of-a-kind Son on our behalf. You see, none of us have the rights to the inheritance. There's only one who has the rights to the inheritance. It is the unique one, the beloved one of God, who is at His side, in His bosom. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Only Jesus has the rights. And that means all of us are in the same boat. We ain't got nothing apart from being united to Him. But in union with Him, we all become sons and daughters and heirs with Christ. Now we should speak of each other as fellow heirs. Even when they sin against us, even when they wrong us, even when our brothers and sisters frustrate us, our words should still come out to them, this is a fellow heir with me. We cannot talk down on those whom God has raised up to reign with us. And when we consider how to to walk together, you know, we're all going to go where? Not to our own laws and our own personal preferences. We're going to go to our Father's household rules. We're going to go here. We're not going to create our own. We're going to go to this, to our Father's household rules. We follow the rules spelled out in Scripture. So, who are you? Really? Take that question to Scripture. Turn away from the idolatry of harmful speech. Humble yourself before the true judge. Remember that His law is good and its goal is love. 
stand in awe of the mercy that you've received in Christ and then walk alongside your brothers and sisters who've received the same mercy. Speak of them in ways that match the gospel realities that we have talked about. And let's not try to live above these gospel realities. We cannot top them. Let's pray together.